All right, what's up to all the cinephiles out there? Welcome to another episode of the Marquee Spotlight, coming to you from the always sunny Portland, Oregon. I am Spencer Bailey, and I am here with my co-host. She's about to serve up a sizzling hot plate of fajitas. Chelsea Burnett's in the house. Hey, and I'm on a new hot mic over here. Oh, coming in loud and clear. Uh, so much nicer now. We did make it through the Portland heat dome. It was it was awful. None of us have AC, but the weather now is so wonderful and pleasant. It is. You just can't beat it. And we were just saying how uh, at our jobs, we just try to sneak in whatever time we can get outside. Just take enjoy those little midday walks. Yeah, well, uh, speaking of hot weather, that brings us to our spotlight topic of the episode, Reddit hot takes. So I can't remember how long it was, but I, so I, I get on Reddit pretty regularly and I saw a thread. It said, what are your cinema and movie hot takes? And I'm going down the list and some of them made me laugh. Some of them made me angry and some of them I found amusing and some of them I kind of agreed with. And I immediately texted Chelsea and I was like, oh my God, this is an episode. Like we gotta, we gotta put this aside and, and hang on to it and, and pull I'm, it out at some point. I, I don't really go on Reddit very often, but I do love when someone shares a good Reddit thread with me and very easy to go down a rabbit hole with that. But I think you've collected some great topics for us to go through. I'm, I'm stoked. Well, and it's perfect too, because um, you may recall in the last episode, we said we were going to be doing a retrospective of Val Kilmer's career. And you know, sometimes life just gets in the way, and uh, we don't feel like we're prepared enough to do that episode justice. So this was one we could pull out, give you some content, and uh, I think we're going to have a lot of fun with this one. Absolutely. And Spencer's being very kind. He, I'm sure, was very prepared and has been putting in the work for Val Kilmer, but I have been derelict in my in my responsibilities there but i'm glad we can uh we can switch in this fun hot takes episode in in place of that i'm sure you're more prepared than you think but i've got some more vel camera movies to watch myself so i want to do the man justice um but let's start with some news um first thing i wanted to bring up tarantino has been making the rounds i'm sure you've seen because he is everywhere he he actually lives in in israel right now that's where his wife is from uh, but he's been in town in L.A. because he wrote a novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So, I mean, he's been everywhere. I've seen him on Kimmel. I've seen him on uh, Bill Maher. I've heard him on The Big Picture. I've heard him on Mark Marin, And that's just to name a few. He's been pretty much everywhere. Uh, Tarantino is my favorite director. So getting all of this, um, you, you know, getting all these interviews and insight from him has just been a blast to listen to. Oh, yeah. And he's such a good talker. I mean, he he can go and go and go. But I mean, just like with his his scripts and the characters he writes, like you could you could just listen to them for hours. I feel like there's always something um, interesting to pick up on. And I love his enthusiasm. And uh, I I even really appreciated. I think he kind of stumbled over his words or like if it made me feel a lot better, like on this show when sometimes I'm like, is that a word? I think I heard him say something on the big picture where he, he said a word that he kind of made up and then it was like, I don't even know if that's a word, but it just it endeared me to him a little bit more. Yeah. You know, in a world of where we're pretty consistently let down <laughs> by the celebrities he like, he seems like such a grounded, thoughtful you know, 
just just insightful person. And I love how much of himself he's been giving to these interviews. And, you know, the, like the Jimmy Kimmel one was fun. They blindfolded him and he read the description of really like obscure VHS movies and to see if Tarantino could get him because he's just an encyclopedia. Yeah. But on the big picture, he opened up about his relationship with his 15 or 15 month old son mm-hmm. um, and showed this really great story of their first movie experience together um, it was Despicable Me too, but instead of just putting it on and letting his kid go in the background, he made sure that they kind of watched it in 15 to 20 minute bites. So as soon as his son would stop watching it, he turned it off and then come back a couple days later so he could remember his first movie experience with his son. I, I just loved him giving that personal bit of himself. I did too. And I feel like um, you can hear a, um, there is like, I think a change to the the man Quentin Tarantino is now that he's a father. There's like, I don't know, a softness or something to him. Absolutely. And and if you haven't listened to the Mark Maron one yet, I I recommend that too, because he gets a little vulnerable. He Mm -hmm. talks about his actual father because he wasn't raised by his father. Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of a wild story. I I don't want to give it away. Definitely go go listen. Yeah. Listen to Tarantino's uh, interview with Mark Marin. Uh, speaking of Tarantino in the news, he also just bought the famous Los Angeles Vista Theater, which was about to get shut down. This is now the second theater he's purchased in LA. He's going to show older movies as well as bring in current film, which I think is the way to go. But God bless you, Tarantino. Uh, we got to save these these old theaters, these historic theaters. Absolutely. I, and going quickly just back to the uh, novelization of Once Upon a Time, are you planning on reading it? Do you, do you want? I kind of want to because from everything they're saying, like they flesh out Cliff's character more. You hear more about his background. I guess they confirmed that he did kill his wife. <laughs> I was kind of like, I like that it's ambiguous, but I, you're telling me he did. All right. Um Everyone just says it's very well written. Mark Marin said, I don't read a lot of books that I have to to prepare for these interviews, but I read this one and I couldn't put it down. So that that really intrigues me. I actually like reading and I don't do it nearly enough. I know. I'm in a book club and I I love that it does, you know, it it keeps me uh, honest about my my book reading. And I really need, I'm a good reads account with my goals, but I, oh. Bad. I just hate when th- life just gets in the way, and uh, but need to read more. And I would, I, I'd actually be kind of fun to see if I could get the audio book of this. I wonder if Quentin is uh, reading, reading it. I was going to say, it wouldn't it be great if he does it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I love that he bought the theater. Um, it's kind of interesting timing for us because if if you if you don't know, and most people probably don't, we have a historic theater here in Portland called the Hollywood Theater, and um, they're really well known for. Um, having a 70 millimeter screen, mm-hmm. which is kind of rare these days. And you can become a member and donate to them and keep it alive. But one of my favorite experiences, what they got a, an actual 1989 reel, 70 millimeter reel of uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And I got to see that. That was a lot of fun. But they're just reopening to 75% capacity. And they're starting off with Tenet, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And 2001 Space Odyssey, all in 70 millimeter. I've already got tickets to Tenet because I haven't seen it in theaters. I kind of want to see 2001 because even though I've seen that movie, seeing it in that experience has got to be cool. I have heard that it's it's a very different experience to see 2001 uh, on the big screen. And maybe I wouldn't fall asleep this time because the two times I've tried to watch it at home, I have uh, uh, I have snoozed my way through the last half of it. 
Yeah, I think this day and age, when you watch 2001, you have to think about it for when it came out because it was ahead of its time. And a lot of these long shots with no dialogue were really Kubrick sh- kind of showing off. Mm. Um, but but anyway, we're getting off topic a little bit. I uh, do want to, when you see Tenet and when you get an, to have that experience, I really want to hear what it was like because um, I, I imagine in that setting, it's going to be kind of... Uh, overwhelming in a good way i'm kind of glad i've already seen it a couple times so i can really take in the experience so it'll be fun uh last movie or uh, news topic we wanted to cover unfortunately this week we lost richard donner the famous director he was 91 yeah good life good long life um you know famous for of course he directed all four lethal weapons uh goonies superman one and then he did he so he was directing Superman one and two at the same time. He got seventy five percent of Superman two done, and he started to um, butt heads with the production company, and they fired him mm. and brought and didn't even list him in the credits. Uh, what a burn! But uh, he also uh, Scrooge, The Omen, <laughs> uh, Maverick, which is kind of a fun movie. We used to watch it a lot when I was a kid. It's it's a pretty fun movie. And uh, his final movie in two thousand six was a film called. Uh, 16 blocks which I, I saw that in theaters yeah it's kind of a low-key like good movie it's mm. a really good david morris performance it's bruce willis and most deaf uh i re- love most deaf i i would like to see him i love him in be kind rewind oh uh, he's also really good in a uh, hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy mm-hmm. but if you just want kind of a a grip your seat hold your breath uh action film like check out 16 blocks i don't even know if i call it an action film but it's no, I, I from what I remember, I mean, it has been years uh, since I saw it, but I yeah, I remember it feeling like an action. I, and there were, I think, a, quite a few laughs in it from what I can remember. So, yeah, it's got it all. Any of those movies, Richard Donner movies, really mean something to you? Um, well, I, 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 mean, I was uh, excited to see that he directed all four Lethal Weapons. I feel like that's kind of rare to have someone... Uh, uh, do all because like even with like the Die Hard movies they didn't have the same director for all of them just so, for the first and second sec- one I mean excuse me first and third, third one McTiernan did the first and third and I feel like those are the strongest so that that works but I I can't remember if I've just told you this off mic or if I've said it on mic but I do love Lethal Weapon 4 so uh it was one of the first DVDs that my family owned and I uh snuck away and watched it a lot and laughed at the Chris Rock monologue where he just goes out just is shitting on cell phones and joe pesci is in there and i i don't know i used to just make me laugh hysterically um when i was like in sixth grade so um i'm rambling now but yeah i the lethal weapon series holds a soft spot in my heart and who also doesn't love goonies so i was just about to say we're in oregon we got to bring up goonies of course you're a native oregonian (laughs) but uh, i'm not uh but yeah, Astoria, Oregon was where Goonies was filmed. Uh, people still come around to see the house, and those oh, poor those people that live in the house are probably sick of it. But great director. He will be missed. Um, at least he got to live a, a nice, long, full life. Mm. So um, that's it for news. But before we get into the topic, there was something else Chelsea and I were going to cover. Now, last week, we were challenged. Yes. Our, our guest, James, who came to do the top 10 action movies in 1990 to 1995, had the first pick, and to our complete shock and awe, picked Rumble in the Bronx. 
Now, Chelsea had not seen this movie, and I'd only seen part of it a very long time ago and didn't remember thinking it was something worth revisiting. James challenged us because we did decide that it needed to be number 10 on the list. And he challenged us. He said, you're going to go watch it and you're going to regret it. So Chelsea and I made it a point to be fair to the top 10 game and to live up to the challenge to watch Rumble in the Bronx. And oh my, do we have some thoughts. Oh, um, I just, that, okay. It kept coming into my head when we were watching it. Like, did this deserve to make the top 10? And I do think for it, it, like the fact that it added a little surprise factor to the top ten, I'm 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 okay with it being there. I do think James' point of it being an action movie is legit. I mean, there was a scene of a huge truck full of balls that fell off the top of a parking structure. That that type of action you don't see in in all kinds of movies and lots of uh, lots of guys on on dirt bikes riding around the Bronx and and Jackie seeing Jackie Chan in in his element um, you know I, I you, you just you can't you can't beat it it was enjoyable I'm really glad though that it uh, did not rank higher on our list than Batman Forever so even though I think there are some parts of both of those two movies that sort of overlap like something about the wackiness of the the villains and the like the punks uh there 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 definitely was something happening in the 90s where i don't know costume designers like to dress them in really loud clothing and um, but yes what are your thoughts well let's let's talk about its merits really quick so yes choreography and jackie chan doing the his action stuff insanely impressive like so incredibly impressive the part where he is bouncing off the fence and the wall to mm. run up i mean crazy athleticism and chelsea you made an observation when we were brought we we're talking about the movie that i thought was absolutely brilliant especially <laughs> when i was watching the movie but you said jackie chan is like charlie chaplin he really is like what a great comparison and i would also add buster keaton who was the original i do my own stunts yes. doing these crazy stunts and jackie chan made a career out of doing crazy stunts himself that other people wouldn't do. Yeah, I'm glad there was a martial arts movie on there, and I'm glad James was so enthusiastic about it. Gotta love that. <laughs> that being said, it's staying at number 10. Oh, my God. Here's the notes that I took yes. while I was watching this movie. This is clearly not New York. It's called Rumble in the Bronx. They get on a rooftop. There's a giant green hill. I'm like, that's not New York. That looks like the West Coast. They filmed in British Columbia. Oh, boy. Why is everything ADR'd? Everybody's speaking English and everything was ADR'd. All of it. Every piece of dialogue was ADR'd. It, it, it was so glaring and, and distracting. And it seemed like some people were, they, hi they hired other actors to do the ADR that weren't the original, uh, the, the people who appear on screen. I don't know. But that was certainly Jackie Chan's voice. But 100%. But he was ADR'd. It was distracting. <laughs> I put in quotations, he stole my cushion. There's a scene where they want to bait Jackie Chan, so they attack the young boy in the wheelchair, and they take his seat cushion. That and the boy crazy. says, he stole my cushion, and Jackie Chan chases him. Um, I'm convinced all these actors were pulled right up off the street. They sure seemed that way. The streets of British Columbia. Techno dance music while a metal band is playing guitars. He walks into a club. There's like 90s techno dance music playing while a band that looked like they're opening for Pearl Jam was on stage rocking out. 
uh, oh, I put here, he just threw a child. <laughs> yeah. He saves a child, he saves a child from being run over by a vehicle and just throws the kid in the air like a rag doll. Not just any vehicle, what kind of vehicle? Oh, that's the other thing. There was this weird hovercraft <laughs> boat thing that could go water or land. And after they take the villain out of the vehicle, of course, Jack, I put, of course he knows how to drive one of the one of a kind vehicle. Oh, and now he's driving on a, a golf course. He just got into this one-of-a-kind vehicle and just knew how to drive it. And then I just have exclaiming, that's the end, because it just ends. Yeah, did you, and you can tell that um, one of the characters I don't even think was true, really filming in the hovercraft. I feel like they shot her separately from everyone else, but tried to stitch it in to seem like she was there with the, the rest of the gang. But yeah. I'm not I'm I I got to applaud James for pushing me to to see something I may not have uh, have uh, sought out on my own and you know it, it was it it was it was fun. It was fun. It was fun. Parts of it made me laugh. The fight scenes really were very impressive. James, I'm glad you were so enthusiastic about it. It's staying at 10. And 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 to Batman Forever's credit, you know, as we all said our Batman standards has raised. I think that's the way James worded our Batman standards have raised everything. But I think there's something to be said that when all three of us were children, we really adored that movie. And the performances are better. The production's better. We talked about the amazing soundtrack. I, I, I'm sorry. I just I just don't think James is a leg to stand on. Roman LeBron's got to go at 10. Although that song that plays in the ending credits when it's showing the um, the outtakes and it's it's some song about Jackie Chan. About Jackie Chan. Uh, th that that's a banger. So, yeah. All right. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with our uh, spotlight topic going down the Reddit hot takes. Okay, Chelsea, you ready to dive into these hot takes? Let's do it. I don't think we need a big intro for this. Let's just get it on. First one comes from Rum Runner. Aliens is a garbage cookie cutter action blockbuster. Alien was a masterpiece. This should be illegal. <laughs> this person should be thrown in jail. They sound like they've got something against uh, James Cameron. Uh I don't know. I don't even know where to start with this. Like, I'm on record on this podcast as saying I think Alien is a masterpiece and Aliens is a just incredibly good movie. And if people like Aliens better than Alien, I won't even argue with them. So, yes, sir, you're right. Alien is a masterpiece. <laughs> Aliens is not a garbage cookie cutter action blockbuster. You just think that because you've seen this a million times, but you didn't see it before Aliens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I, I, I do. Uh, this is a hard Hard, hard disagree. Sorry, I'm taking a sip of whiskey there. Um, all right, a reasonable thought. That's that's the name of the redditor. Mm. Babe, Pig in the City is George Miller's best movie. <laughs> My good sir, a movie called Mad Max Fury Road is, exists. It won like eight Oscars, <sighs> and I would say some people. I've not seen Babe in the in the city, Pig in the City, but I think most people prefer the first one to the second one. Absolutely. And it is, I mean, there's some controversy around this, but George Miller is not, you know, credited as the director of Babe. He wrote it, but he he pretty much held the real director's or the the, the credited director's hand through the, the making of it. And Babe is a is a family film masterpiece. I think it's got it's got great uh, dark elements that like don't like talk down to children i think 
I love Babe. So um, I I would consider Babe to be a George Miller movie too. Of course, everything I've heard because I don't think that the real director really brought much to the table. But Mad Max, Fury Road, come on. Yeah, I mean, look, this is not a knock on the Babe movies, but Mad Max Fury Road is a triumph. And I will tell you, I enjoyed it much more in theaters than when I rewatched it at home. Uh, I think the silly elements really shine through when you just watch it at home. But I was dragged to it by friends, and it's one of the funnest times I've ever had in the movie theater. You were dragged to it? I'd never seen, at that point, I'd never seen any older Mad Max. Mm-hmm. So James and his wife, uh, when we still live in Louisiana, had me go with them. And I was like, I guess I'll go. And I just never in a million years would have expected how much fun I had. I just was gripping literally gripping my seat not figuratively it was it was really fun i remember coming to work and it was kind of like starting to spread like uh, every everyone was like trickling in day by day having gone to see the movie and then like by the end of the week i just felt like it was all anyone could talk about so incredible movie all right next one rushmore alumni says The current film discourse and culture is a wasteland because nobody bothers to learn history, context, or about the craft before embarking on a career as a critic. YouTube essayists are particularly bad at this, consistently putting out shallow and reductive takes that a young audience then heralds as gospel. I don't know if I would consider this a hot take. I, but but you know, based on what he's saying. The people he's talking about would probably find this to be a hot take. Mm. I put it in here though because he's absolutely right, or this person is absolutely right. I don't. I, I say he. It could be a woman. That was one of Roger Ebert, who, by the way, was not always right. He gave four stars to some stinkers, and he gave two and a half stars to some all-time great movies. But he said that pe- when young people would come up to them and say they want to be a film critic, he would say, "What's some of your favorite old movies?" And nobody ever went past the '60s. And he's like, "You've got a lot more learning to do." Mm-hmm. He's right. You have to go back to the '30s, the '40s, and the '50s and learn. It, not even that, the silent films. Mm-hmm. Like I've never sat through the whole thing. I want to, but I've seen a great deal of Metropolis. Mm-hmm. Like you've got to watch the silent films. You've got to watch all this stuff. You made Jackie Chan comparison, the Jackie Chan comparison to Chaplin and I to Keaton, because we know about hit movie history, and that was a great pickup by you, Chelsea. Oh, well, well, thank you. I, I think I, I love the internet that it does allow people to like, I'm not on Twitter, but I hear a lot of people talk about film Twitter and um, the types of discussions that are happening on there. And I, I think, yeah, just as in anything, before you try to form an opinion, you, you gotta, you gotta get all the context around it and, and put in a little work. And and there is a bit of a responsibility. I mean, I see the types of the types of social like movements that go along with uh, with media, with movies, TV, everything. And um, I think, yeah, we do have to be a little careful about the t- running our mouths. Um, uh, uh, these these YouTubers that the, this redditor is talking about. My father was a history professor, and he crammed it into my head how important history is. Now, sure, it's easy for me to say, but he's right. And that includes our entertainment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you want to be a critic, you got to learn it all. Yes, and you got to stay open minded too. So just like us with Rumble in the Bronx, you know, we I think uh, maybe just seeing a trailer for that, I may have been like, this isn't for me. I'm not gonna watch it, even though I do like Jackie Chan. Just maybe there would have been. I'm like, oh, there's no, 
Owen Wilson or Chris Tucker in this. There's not a comedian I recognize. So, um, uh, I yeah, you just gotta go in with an with an open mind. Great point, Chelsea. All right, user Samurai Jack Bauer. That is a great name, by the way. If you're listening to this, kudos <laughs> to you. Michael Bay feels forgotten now. To be honest, I think people that say movies today aren't all blockbusters and popcorn flicks are morons who don't actually look for and likely don't enjoy independent movies. I feel like those two points were combined. I, I I may have misinterpreted that as I was typing this up, but let's let's just talk about the Michael Bay thing. Hmm. Does he feel forgotten? Maybe a little bit. It's deserving. I, I I mean, look, people shit on Michael Bay way more than they should. He makes fun blockbuster movies. He makes he doesn't make filet mignon movies. He makes cake movies, and that's fine. Like The Rock is awesome. Bad Boys is a lot of fun. Armageddon is silly, but it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. I will say, actually, I was impressed with the first Transformers. I was expecting, Me too. I was expecting a terrible movie. And I remember sitting at theaters going, this is well done for, for what I wanted mm-hmm. it to be. Now, the rest of them, <laughs> um, not so much. It may but have been a cat, more of like a cash grab kind of thing, but... Um... I think one of the main problems, and, and maybe here's a mild hot take from me, and... I think Michael Bay started to buy into his own bullshit and he'll never admit this, but I think that when he made Armageddon, he thought this is going to be my, my Oscar movie. And it wasn't. And then he was like, Pearl Harbor, here we go. Here's my Oscar movie. And it was bad. He doesn't know how to make a movie of substance. If I'm wrong, well, Michael make it because you've never made it. I, I wonder if he was thinking he was going to follow a James Cameron track. Um, and I'm, that's a good call. I, I I think what what James Cameron brings to the table is this. Um, there is a uh, a seriousness to his blockbusters. Like I'm thinking about just the the setting behind everything. It just gets you in this a little. Uh, a little more like thoughtful mode, if if that's making sense. Like whereas I do feel like Michael Bay movies are a little bit more just just fluff. They're really entertaining. Um, I mean the the last Michael Bay movie that I saw that I was really surprised and really impressed and really dug was uh, Pain and Gain, which was the movie with uh, The Rock and um, Anthony Mackie and uh, Mark Wahlberg, and I saw that in theaters and yes it is a bit bloated and long but I thought it started off really strong and um it it was a little had to be a little more toned down I guess from like the big explosions of Transformers that that Michael Bay had been doing but I still think he brought this like kind of grandness to that story it was based on a on a true story of these these uh bodybuilders that uh killed someone but uh I I I do love that movie, and I will sing that movie's praises. That is my hot take, that Pain and Gain is a great movie. You know, I've never seen that, but a lot of people speak of it fondly. So yeah, look, Michael Bay was very good at what he did. I think that it just got stale. And you bring up James Cameron, who, you know, I think James Cameron's a better director than Michael Bay, but he also spaces his movies out. Mm -hmm. And Michael Bay just pumped them out, pumped them out, pumped them out. And I just think that it probably wore on him, wore on us as an audience. So... Is he forgotten? Maybe. But what has he done to stay relevant? Pain and gain. <laughs> but Very that's well. been several several years, so he needs a new pain and gain. All right. 
So I, I don't know if I'm supposed to pronounce this username a certain way. I'm just going to say it. It's Jaw05R. Tim Burton movies are all style and no substance. Mm. His visual style is appealing, but he is terrible at story and character progression. Terrible at story. I don't. Uh, well, sorry. I'll let you go. No, please. I, I, I this one kind of pissed me off. I just felt like I, I well, one Tim Burton has a has a huge, like a vast filmography, and even while yes, he. he may have bungled like the Willy Wonka movie or the Alice in Wonderland movies and the, his later stuff. I, I actually do find there's some things to really love about Big Eyes. Have you seen that movie? No, I've always been curious. Yeah, it's um, I mean, Christoph Waltz will like, as usual, really get under your skin. Um, But yeah, I just don't I, I that that I, I think what makes Tim Burton movies so special is are the characters so what did this person say he doesn't know how to uh terrible at story and character progression character progression i yeah i i'm with you i think this is an unfair comment and i think that it maybe it's easier to make this case with some of his more recent movies but like hey buddy have you seen ed wood that movie is fantastic and it just really dug into these people that really existed like Bella Lugosi and Ed Wood and who they were at their heart, you know, Bella, you know, Bella Lugosi is a very tragic character in this movie and he really happened to him. I mean, he was an addict and he was felt forgotten and that all comes through in the movie while also being amusing. I'd say Edward Scissorhands, which uh, yes. I'm not as high on as other people, but my God, so much heart and emotion and definitely character progression in that movie. Mm -hmm. And all the all the um, the people in the community in that movie, I feel like um, they progress, too, as the story goes along, not just Edward. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we didn't even bring up Big Fish. Mm -hmm. A lot of heart there. And his animated movie, you know, Nightmare Before Christmas, Corpse Bride, you know, a lot of heart and character in those those movies as well. Yeah, I, I don't think that's a fair statement. I, I, I think that's just somebody being edgy. Maybe like, they just saw Planet of the Apes and were really pissed off. Well, <laughs> I saw Planet of the Apes and was really pissed off, so it's okay. Uh, all right, Crazy Care Accountant. In cinema, style over substance is not a bad thing. Now, I don't think this is that hot, but I, I put it in here because it ties back to uh, our Batman Forever versus Rumble in the Bronx thing. I mm. think Batman had more style. Yeah. And that made it a better movie. That little finesse. Yes. It can it, if also the going uh the sorry to to shit on the ADR mumble in the Bronx, but it really goes to show those little touches with with sound like sound matters so much in movies. It can really take you out of an experience if um if something seems un something seems off with the sound or unrealistic or um whatever so yeah and in style over substance um, you know the first movies that came to my mind when i read this comment was john wick mm. so much style not a lot of substance True. and it's great yeah <laughs> it's so good I don't want the substance. I want exactly what it is. I think if your style remains consistent throughout the movie, which it does, and um, great point, yeah. Uh, so uh, and your casting is uh, it, those movies are really well cast. Um, so I think you can get people into a movie with a lot of style if you give 
the people what they want. They want to see beautiful people. They want to see faces they recognize and they want it to, they do want it to feel consistent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This one's going to be fun. Lilifair98. I wonder if that's her <laughs> name because I actually went to Lilifair in 98. That's pretty cool. Uh, a League of Their Own is the greatest baseball movie ever made. Okay. Oh boy. <laughs> Let me be, I'm on record. I love A League of Their Own. It is an excellent movie. Mm-hmm. Gina Davis is lights out in it. Tom Hanks is hilarious. Yeah. And not only is he hilarious, he has one of my favorite movie quotes of all time. And I have used this to motivate people in real life. When Gina Davis, towards the end of the movie, she's, she doesn't want to go to the World Series. She's going to go home. And she, he's chewing her out for quitting. And she says, it just got too hard. And he says, it's supposed to be hard. Mm. If it wasn't, everyone would do it. The hard is what makes it great. I love that quote. But this is a bold, this is a hot take. Like, you're ignoring Bull Durham. You're ignoring Field Dreams, The Natural. Like, Major League, which might be one of my favorite comedies of all time, let alone baseball movies. Like, wow, that is a bold statement. I, um, I'm not as well versed in baseball movies, but I... I love Moneyball. I I don't oh, know. If God, I, I forgot I about Moneyball. Say, yeah, I, I I I I haven't seen League of Their Own in a while, but Moneyball's pretty darn perfect. So. Moneyball might be the greatest baseball movie ever mm. made. Um, mm. Yeah, I Little Affair '98. I respect the Moxie, but that <laughs> is a bold statement. Thank you for reminding me of that quote. I forgot about that moment in the movie, but uh, yeah, I love that quote. I love it. Tell all your fans that quote when they're feeling down, like life's too hard. Uh, okay. Infinite, <laughs> infinite fuckery. <laughs> that sounds like a bad time. Jenny was not the bad guy in Forrest Gump. She exhibited all the classic signs of an abused child, mistrust, running, drug use, impulsivity. She was protecting herself the only way she knew how. I thought this would be, this is always, this is a hot button topic in movies and it has been. I thought you would probably have a lot of thoughts on this. I think that the Jenny thing is more complex than is she good or bad? Yeah, I was sort of surprised to. Can you remind me again? They call her. Uh, she's not the villain, or Jenny was not the bad the guy. Bad guy. She wasn't the bad guy. I don't yeah. think there was a bad guy in Forrest Gump. I, 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 I've never really heard people come for Jenny um, when I hear people talk about Forrest Gump. I mean, oh really? Oh, she's bad mouth. Like she's been bad mouth quite, quite terribly over the years. Hmm. I guess in my home. We, I think she just she's really pulled at our heartstrings. I I um I, I think what that uh, that person said about the, all the signs she was exhibiting is really spot on. Um, I mean there was a lot I didn't pick up on when I first saw Forrest Gump. Like I didn't quite understand that she was being abused by her father. I think I knew that something unhealthy was happening at home um but i i feel like there's uh as as i grew up with that movie there was more and more i could kind of take away from from uh robin wright's performance and and the writing of that character i i mean she's jenny's definitely over the top like a lot of the characters are i guess they have to fit uh these these big stereotypes uh did if we want to look at it as was it wrong of her to like have a sexual relationship with Forrest because if he was uh well that's he wasn't completely like mentally capable that's one of the things so look Jenny's a very complex character and and you know part of me wants to go well at a certain point 
you have to be the one to take charge of things. But she was also a woman mm. in that time, in, a, in that time yeah. period. And there wasn't a lot of outlets for her to get the help that she needed. But yes, the one thing that sticks out to me that it's like, Jenny, it's not a good look is she comes back and forth life for the 15th time, sleeps with him and then leaves. And he doesn't see her for years until she's dying. Mm -hmm. And I, I think they, I, it's been a while since I've seen it, but don't they imply she's got AIDS? Yes. Yeah. And she's like, well, I'm dying. By the way, here's this kid that you fathered with me. Not, not great. That's a lot to put on Forrest uh, that, that who it's like, was he really equipped to be able? But it did give us one of the most tear jerking uh, scenes at, like at, when he wants to know about the son and he finds out his name is Forrest and she's named after his daddy. And then he choked Tom Hanks just chokes up. I'm like, yeah, you got the Oscar in the bag right here when he he says, well, is he like is he is he smart or is he like me? And it just, mm, that scene always kills yeah. me. Um, but. It's a great scene. I, I have a lot of complicated thoughts on Forrest Gump. And one day we're going to do uh, revisit the 1995 Oscars mm. so I can get all my anger out. But uh, there's no denying that scene. It's fantastic. And I guess uh, one one thing about Jen A is that um, if, if I could see why she can't, kept coming back to Forrest, abuse especially at a young age i've heard can really like it, it can stunt a person like it you i think sometimes you know you you can't um always progress uh past a certain age from when the abuse started so if you're kind of looking at it that way i can kind of see where she found some security in being with Forrest, who was always good to her and and there was always this little girl maybe you can kind of see trapped inside of her that felt that felt safe being around around him and and maybe we could see that as she wasn't really knowing she was taking full advantage of him it was uh, yeah. right like we said it's complex she's not a, she's not bad and she has gotten more negative more negativity towards her over the years than she deserves and by the way any critiques on jenny have nothing to do with you robin wright you are a delight and i hope <laughs> that you act forever and in the same vein as helen mirren um okay the Screaming Taco, or excuse me, just Screaming Taco. <laughs> it's perfectly fine for an actor to portray a gender sexuality that doesn't align with how they personally identify. Yes, scream it from the rooftops. It's called acting, ladies and gentlemen. And let me, let me be fair. I want representation. Truly, mm -hmm. I truly do. Let's have representation. But in these recent times where everyone gets called out on the internet for every little thing, there have been very talented actors that are yelled at for playing you know, an identity or a gender or sexuality that, that they don't have in that real life. Well, I want representation, but if that person's a better fit for the job, then it's called acting. Like Jared Leto won an Oscar for Dallas Buyers Club playing, I mean, a, a trans a trans person or confused, you know, well, I mean, a very problematic trans person and he deserved it. Like, it, because it's acting and I, I want representation, but Let's do it the right way. I'm I'm trying to um, remember because there was I know some um, some controversy around Jared Leto's Oscar win for that. Well, that, the big that one performance. was Scarlett Johansson got cast as a trans person, and she was kind of bullied out of the role. She backed off the role because Twitter came after her. Yeah, I think there is it, there's 
I I do think what it should be is the 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 best person, the person who proved themselves in the casting room, like uh, should should take the part. I think if you're gonna take a role that that does carry a little extra weight to it, you should be well versed for your your all of the 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 PR campaign that goes with the movie. Agreed. And um and I think maybe Jared Leto fumbled some of that from what I can remember that was maybe why there was sort of a bitter taste in people's mouth about um about that win for him but I remember in liking his performance I only saw that movie once but what I wasn't surprised when he got nominated I thought that that made sense but I've I heard some people recently talking about Brokeback Mountain as well and I'm Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal who I I I I don't know if Jake Gyllenhaal has ever really addressed his sexuality. I'm I'm pretty sure he is is straight, but he could be what however he chooses right, to identify. A- but but I think that that having those two actors in that role really sh- shined a spotlight on a story that if if they had cast more unknown. And sadly, I'm really rambling here. I guess what I mean to say is it would be great if we if Hollywood could open its door to more openly queer performers, because then we would have more A-list queer people. And I think that we are getting there. I I think every year those doors are opening. Um, But at that time in the mid 2000s, when Brokeback came out, we really didn't have very many like out gay leading men. Well, But I think what you just said is and I've heard somebody make this point where you said you don't know what Jake Gyllenhaal's sexuality is. He seems straight, but we don't know. And that's the key. It's none of our freaking business Mm -hmm. what these people's sexualities are. And we don't even know who really is gay or straight in Hollywood because they don't all come out and just say it. So maybe maybe there are gay people that get roles. There's definitely gay people, openly gay people that play straight roles. Mm-hmm. I, you know, look, I we need diversity. We need representation. I hope we're not turning people off of this conversation. I want representation. And like, I please forgive me. The 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 woman from Orange Is New Black, who's Laverne trans, Cox, absolutely great actress, and I would love to see her in more stuff. She's in um, a promising young woman, and I really liked seeing her in that movie. Yeah, she, one of the probably top three actors on Orange Is New Black, and I didn't finish that show. It kind of I didn't either. Yeah, but yes, but yes, want more representation, but let's not bully talented actors out of acting. And and again, you don't know what everybody is, so let's not let's not nitpick this. Okay, Neil before Cod, <laughs> Waterworld is an. A, Waterworld is as entertaining as any of the first three Mad Max films. Definitely has a Mad Max vibe. Uh, there are good elements to Waterworld. It's not great. It's not great. Uh, <laughs> it, it, what he said as entertaining as the first three Mad Max films. Yeah, maybe you're right. The first three Mad Max films, have, they're a little dated. So maybe you're right. This guy, not that guy. <laughs> this is a big one. You've got mail is Tom Hanks's best movie. His chemistry with Meg Ryan is off the charts. It's both hilarious and charming and works as a holiday or a summer movie. It's a goddamn delight. This one made me angry. (laughs) Oh, my word. All of the great, top-level, history-making films, Tom Hanks. And this person says, You Got Got Mail is his best film. It is a hot take. This This is like a felony. 
I think they they can say the movie is a goddamn delight. It is, but it's, to then to I don't know start it off by saying it's his best movie. I think they gotta they gotta they gotta another thing come in there. But um, would we yeah, even put this in top Tom Hanks's top ten movie? I don't know. I mean, his performance, I, I remember he's he's kind of a dick for most of the movie, which I, I, I mean, he's sort of a dick in A League of Their Own. He's kind of a dick in uh, That Thing You Do. I, I'm, I'm, he can make that work. Um, I, I mean, probably one of my favorite Tom Hanks performances is in uh, Splash. Great but movie. I'm, I'm not going to, because that's my favorite performance of his, I'm not going to say it's the best movie he's ever done. So um, uh, on the spot, though, I can't think of hey, what would be his best movie. To this person's credit, they asked for hot takes. And that is a that is a sizzling hot take. Yeah. So ha- I, again, I respect the moxie. Mm-hmm. Big old belly button. The World's End was easily Edgar Wright's best film in terms of comedy, narrative buildup, action set pieces, homages to source material, and complex human emotion. Uh, disagree. Uh, uh, Scott Pilgrim and Baby Driver exist, not to mention Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, which out of that trilogy, um, I prefer Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. Uh, World's End was fine. It really lost me towards the end. Not a bad movie. Definitely not Edgar Wright's best movie. And it was confusing when it came out because there was that other movie with uh, oh, this, the, is, the this is the end that I did see, but I never got around to seeing no. it. The same person, big old belly button, said, if anyone other than Tarantino made Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it would be considered a bloated, self-congratulatory Hollywood flick with zero narrative or momentum. A 30-minute power fantasy ending does not suddenly make a film good. I want to fight this person. Uh, I, I, well, I hate the point that they're like it's a self-congratulatory Hollywood flick. Yes, that the it's it's an ode to old Hollywood. That's what Tarantino wanted to make. He wanted to make an ode to old Hollywood and tell these stories that really happen to these actors that they would become TV stars and then start to fade away, not really know what to do with themselves. You know, Sharon Tate, who she was as a person, it is like Tarantino is my favorite director. Mm-hmm. I think that this was his best movie probably since like I mean Jackie Brown. I mean, what a dude, the movie's incredible. This person's crazy. I also I, I don't know. I mean, they mentioned the the ending, but I, the movie I think is I love the the first like I don't know, the first few acts of the movie uh, before that that big climactic ending. I think those really shine more than what happens. That people talk more about I guess the ending, but I think the ending would have been harder for me to accept had he not changed history in Inglorious Bastards first. Mm. So I was I you know, you don't know what's going to happen. And then they changes the ending and it's like, you know what? I'm fine with it. Because you kind of wish there was a couple guys like that 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 saved Sharon Tate and her friends. And it was kind of sweet after all the craziness. It's kind of a sweet way to end the movie. They invite him in and the soft music's playing. And Tarantino never really done anything like that before. Mm. No. Big old belly button. <laughs> Be gone with you. T. Pyrick. The Last Samurai is Tom Cruise's best movie. Okay. I don't know if it's Tom Cruise's best movie. I think it's very underrated. I, I It's been a while since I saw it, but I remember really enjoying it and thinking it was one of Tom Cruise's best performances. It, it's a cool movie. I That came out when I was in middle school, and I remember hearing a lot of boys at my middle school talking about how cool it was, and I never got around to seeing it. And 
however many years later. I still haven't, but I I do really like Tom Cruise and I'm really wanting to like dive into some of his really good performances that I've still never seen. Like I've never seen Magnolia. I was just talking to some, someone at work about that today. He's and really good, um, yeah, so I'll add The Last Samurai to that, that list. Yeah, it it's a little hokey. Not gonna lie, and and you know people do criticize it for being one of the white savior movies, and absolutely, totally valid criticism. You know that was really mm-hmm. rampant around that time, but old Japan and the customs and the traditions of old Japan, which is pretty cool. It, I remember really enjoying it. I'd like to watch it again. And that was when he was in his uh, kind of long hair mode, right? Like I feel like that was uh, I don't know that Tom Cruise was rocking like these half half ponies for a while i sort of remember on the red carpet his hair was long yeah and uh blando cartesian <laughs> uh steven seagal's 90s over <laughs> is better than john wick movies um <laughs> i think calling using that word to describe steven seagal's films is uh, uh yet yeah, not not uh not yes. representative of what those films were uh, and saying that they were better than the John Wick movies. How dare you, sir? I said it last week. Steven Seagal sucks. His movies sucked. He sucks. And it's not better than John Wick. The same person also, Blando Cartesian, said, uh, Interstellar is not a hard sci-fi. Listen, I have a book on my shelf about how they brought in all these real scientists in to make sure as much of the movie was at least plausible as possible. Neil deGrasse Tyson, which... Take it for what it is. He said, the only thing I can't say for certain is true in that movie is what's inside of a black hole because none of us know. So have at it, you know, do what you want with it. They brought in a lot of science people to make sure that they were being as true to actual science as possible. So uh, I disagree, sir. Yeah. Uh, what What is what is kind of the definition of hard sci-fi sure it basically means it's as grounded in scientific reality as as possible okay so yeah so i mean in terms of you know black holes and wormholes exist we've never gone through them but a lot of the physics and the theories you know relativity Mm -hmm. and everything from what i understand what i've always read and seen in interviews was it's pretty spot on yeah, I I mean I, I would I would put contact up there with Interstellar in terms of uh, their their hard sci-fi credibility. So um, even I I think any movie that um, any science fiction movie that can explain the science without making you feel dumb or lost or take away from your enjoyment of the narrative. Um, uh, deserves some kudos like I feel like Arrival sort of explained you know I was able to follow what the science fiction was behind that movie as well so I yeah Interstellar I I'm, I don't know what this person has against Interstellar well as I've said on this podcast Nolan has become divisive so. mm-hmm. uh, the movie man 2019 Spike Lee is overrated and his lack of subtlety ruins 90% of his films that's pretty harsh. Uh, I, I think I said in a previous episode that Spike Lee has made some made some not great movies, but he's made some really incredible movies, really important, important movies. Mm-hmm. I would say that Do the Right Thing is one of the most important American films ever made. Uh, Malcolm X is an insanely impressive triumph. It's three and a half hours. It's very long, but it's such a well-made movie. Inside Man is amazing. I really liked the the five bloods that came out on Netflix last year, and um, it 
there were over the top elements to it, but I felt that it all paid off in the end. And I'm, I mean, isn't just like with Quentin Tarantino? I mean, a director has their kind of flair, their style that you want to go. To, but sometimes it can go too far. But to say ninety percent. Well, but that's not even the part that bothered me. I think overrated bothered me. One of the biggest complaints most Spike Lee fans have, or people that appreciate his work have, is he's actually underappreciated. Mm-hmm. I mean, his, especially by the Oscars. Absolutely, I like. Do the right thing was nominated for like nothing. I mean, I think it had like one nomination. It's he's one of the most overlooked directors. Overrated is what are you talking about? <laughs> um, Captain Cook. Twilight is a cinematographical masterpiece. Director Catherine Hardwick knew how she could elevate the shitty material and make it beautiful. I'll go even further. Without the first movie being made as well as it was, it wouldn't have been the success it was. Stop. Stop. I was dragged to see that movie in theater by an ex-girlfriend who wanted to see it. The production value is terrible. It looks like a Lifetime movie. Oh, no, no. I do have to fight you on this, but I... I I there there are definite silly elements to this movie, but Catherine Hardwick has some real like credentials. Have have you ever seen the movie Thirteen? Um, she also directed Lords of Dogtown, which I really like. Um, and they all definitely have this. I think what was so cool about bringing her on for that Twilight, that first film, was it was you know this YA hit of a novel. And then, like, they brought in this indie director to to add this, like, I think they thought it would fit the Pacific Northwest style because that's where the vampires live and everything. I, I thought it came together very nicely. I think that some of maybe her indie background didn't really play out well with some of the, the special effects in the movie. Um, but uh, I, I feel like it, it added a cool flair unforgettable flair uh to to the, the film listen i'm not knocking Catherine hardwick as a director i mean i i haven't seen a lot of her films and i'm sure she's very talented but saying that it's a cinematographical masterpiece <laughs> and she did such a good job that it kept dude stop just stop just stop uh mr burnt toast 79 the original toy story is not only the best film of its franchise but the best pixar film overall the whole premise of the spaceman replacing the cowboy is fantastic and brings out the best character moments that Woody has ever had. I'm not going to argue against this. I definitely think it's the first Toy Story is probably the best in the series. Pixar has, I don't know. I mean, I think Finding Nemo has a case. I think Coco has a case. The Incredibles. Yeah, I know a lot of a lot of polls I've seen over the years of what's your favorite Pixar movie. Incredibles usually wins. Um, but Toy Story, is, it's, it's great. It it's, is. It's really great. And... I would it's say really cinematic too. Like at the the I remember being as a child watching it, thinking that the the score just like really gripped me. Absolutely, I will say the one thing that it hinders it now is the animations come a long way. Like if you haven't watched Toy Story the first one in a while, like go watch it now. It's it's kind of jarring how behind the times the animation is. Which when it came out, we were all ooing and aahing yeah. how incredible it was. <laughs> Uh, so I won't argue with this one. I, I think it's debatable, but if you think Toy Story is the best Pixar movie, I'm not going to argue. Mm-hmm. It's a great movie. 
PTB for life. The Fountain is a misunderstood masterpiece. It also is one of the best scores of all time. So you've not seen The Fountain. I have. I'll talk about it. My brother-in-law hounded me for a while to watch it. It was like pretty much the only Arnosky film I haven't seen. Um, the Fountain is great. And he's right. It is misunderstood. And, I, and to be fair, I thought I had it mostly figured out, and I, but I did deep dive and research the movie on the internet afterwards. And you do have to do a little digging to really fully understand what the movie is about. It might be Arnofsky's best film. That's hard for me to say. I, I, it's the one I appreciated the most. He's known for having very heavy endings that bring you down. And this was the one where there was, it was sad, but there was a little bit of hope. Um, if you haven't seen The Fountain, I'd say give it a chance and maybe a couple watches. It's, if you like Arnofsky movies, I, I really do think it is misrepresented. And the film score is absolutely beautiful. It was the first thing that struck me when I watched it. I actually, the main piano part, I learned how to play it because I just, I really enjoy that score. Beautiful score. Uh, Less Than Kale. Donnie Darko is an immensely overrated, uh, or excuse me, Donnie Darko is immensely overrated because most people first saw it when they were angsty teenagers and I am 14 and this is very deep. Um, I'm inclined to agree with this person. Sorry. I'll, I, no, go I, ahead. No, I was going to say, though, when something meant a lot to us as teenagers, do that we then have to like claim it's overrated because it there was a reason it spoke to us. It, um, I'm thinking a lot about the criticism that Garden State gets now. And I because a lot of people, you know, had an iconic soundtrack that really captured sort of like what the generation was interested in. Um but people like to knock on it now because of like the manic pixie dream girl character with Natalie Portman. And I don't know, people like to shit on Zach Braff for some reason. Um, but I I don't I, I think that maybe some of us want to just like forget about our angsty teen days, but they're they made us. They I, shaped I, uh, us. I think that's a valid point. I think that's a valid point. I, I, I think for me, I always heard about it and I, I ended up seeing it in my like mid close to my mid 20s. So it was, you know, I didn't see it when it was like the zeitgeist. And I'd heard so much about it over the years and and then I saw it I was I fell it fell a little flat for me, just a little bit. I, I didn't dislike it, but I was just like what's what's the big deal and it's been a long time since I watched it, but I just remember being like okay. Oh, sure, whatever. I think I remember liking Maggie Gyllenhaal the most about that movie. She being that like bitchy sister. Um I I I liked her a lot. In it, but it, I it never I I don't really know why I'm trying to defend Donnie Darko. It's not like I have a connection to it. Well, no, I, but I think I the point you made yeah. is valid. Like if it's, it's kind of what we said about Batman Forever, why it deserved to be a nine, or you know, if it spoke to us at that time, maybe that was the point. That's fine. I need to rewatch it. What did it? it uh, Mad World, right? That was the the one of the main songs yeah. that came out of the movie. And the, the opening yeah. credits were uh, Echo and the Bunny Men. Yeah. So that's a dope song. Mm. Uh, Dev Fern ninety three. Dunkirk is a pretty mediocre film. I enjoyed it, but it was definitely overhyped because it's a Nolan. I can't help but think if any other filmmaker made the same exact film, I mean the same exact product, it would have received average, average reviews at best. So here's what I'm going to say. I'm a big Nolan fan. When I saw Dunkirk in theater for the first time, I kind of felt this way. I was like, that was a well-made movie, but I don't know if I need to revisit this one like I do the other Nolan movies. Until Tarantino came on the rewatchables and they did Dunkirk, and they broke down all the small elements, mm -hmm. and I went back, actually, to the theater again, because it was re-showing at the Hollywood Theater, 
and I saw what they were talking about, and I had a much stronger appreciation for Dunkirk. I, 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 th- I at first I wanted to question what this person was saying, um, but I, yes, I do think that the fact that Nolan's name was attached to this project brought a lot of people to the theater. You know, I was I went because I was like, well, I saw The Dark Knight on IMAX and thought it was really cool, and I want to see you know another Christopher Nolan movie on IMAX. And it was worth the movie going experience, but I think it it, it did seem like it was kind of like I guess maybe missing the like Christopher Nolan stamp on it. But upon like I think a second rewatch, which I really hope to rewatch that movie someday, I think that I there would be a lot more for me to uh, to take in and appreciate about it. I kind of like that he sort of eased off some of his usual tricks that I think he likes to rely on in his movies. And um, I think there's some incredible performances. I really like how the stories in that movie are, are interwoven. Some stories are stronger than others. Um, but uh, yeah, okay. I, I, I like Dunkirk, but I, I sort of half agree with what this person's saying. Sure. It's fair. I felt that way when I first saw it. Scrum pat, scrum I think Iron Man 2 is the best MCU movie. You're a maniac. <laughs> Mr. Lightbulb. Star Wars is the most overrated franchise in film history. Now, I put this one on because this is actually a pretty consistent argument that James and I have. I'm not a huge Star Wars fan. I have a deep appreciation for the original three films. I think the prequels get more hate than they deserve. Um, I think the new ones are trash. And I, I'm so sick of bloated IP. We've talked about that. But to say that Star Wars films are overrated after the impact they've had on film and people over the years is, to me, an absurd statement. You may not, you may not be your thing, you may not be a Star Wars person, but to call it overrated is not objective and unfair. Do you ha- do you can you think of a franchise that you would say is overrated? Oh, geez, uh, put me on the spot. I don't know, but yeah. I would. I, I'm sure I would. I could think of something. I mean, the first thing that popped in my mind was Fast and the Furious, but. I think those movies are self-aware and the audience knows what it is, so it's not overrated. Yeah. I I I Star Wars like just like I guess Christopher Nolan or whatever, easy target if 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 they're populist, people just want to yeah. sound different. All right, this person said something I agree with and disagree with. Marty McFly, JKR. Hugh Jackman in Prisoners isn't as good as everyone says he is. I will fight you. He is so good in that movie. He's wonderful. I I think I like Jake Gyllenhaal a little bit more in that movie. I I I, I dig on his performance a little bit more, but um, I agree. He he edges him out, but they're both everybody in that movie does a great mm-hmm. job. Mm-hmm. Uh, same for Miles Teller and Whiplash. J.K. Simmons <laughs> was mind blowing, but Miles was perfectly average. Preach it. <laughs> I I don't think I've I've said this to you off air, but I haven't said a podcast. I don't get the Miles Teller thing. I don't know why Hollywood spent five to six years trying to cram him down our throats. I think he is boring, average, milk toast. He's just a dude. He's not a bad actor, but why we had to cram him and everything. The scene in Whiplash where he's crying, saying, I'm upset, is so bad. He is so overpowered by J.K. Simmons in that movie. By the way, that movie did nothing for me. The only thing I got out of it was J.K. Simmons' performance. It really just... I don't know. Made me feel like shit kind of watching it. It was a very stressful experience. Yeah. Um, and but did you end up watching the spectacular now with Miles Teller? Not yet. It's on my I, you you I, that might turn you, you might it. like that performance of his. Maybe that might be the one that I like. Uh Lantern in the Sky. I think 
we could need another live action Batman movie with some camp factor. Mm -hmm. I know everyone loves the brooding and dark and edgy Batman that has been the status quo for a while now, but I think that in I think in an attempt to make Batman a serious figure. Oh, excuse me. I think in an attempt to make Batman a serious figure has come to cost of personality. So obviously I put that because you put the campy Batman forever. I am a huge Batman fan. I do prefer the the brooding Batman, but why don't you? Yeah, I, I well, I, the first thought that came to mind is I wonder what they're going to do with that Robert Pattinson Batman. I don't know if uh, I mean, the trailer looks like it's going to be edgy, broody Batman. Uh, it would be fun to see Robert Pattinson kind of play into. I think he he can be very funny. Um, if it, 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 but I yeah, I'm not getting a sense that that's what that movie's going to be like. Um, yes, I think. I mean, I mentioned in the last episode it would have been interesting to see what Val Kilmer was doing in as Batman and Batman Forever, but under the guidance of of uh, well, but this wouldn't really make it campy because I think. Christopher Nolan doesn't really care about that. That's not the angle he's going for. So yeah, um, maybe Val Kilmer playing that role with today's sensibilities being a little more campy and Joel Schumacher reined in a little bit more. It, it could have uh, it, it could be a little more polished, but um, I, I'm not I don't really know the, the, the comics or like the animated productions of batman so i feel like those those often go a little bit the the animated movies depends it depends on depends on the show it depends on the movie a lot of them are still the broody batman but they're like there was a show called the brave and the bold batman the brave and the bold that was very silly very campy um but i i strongly recommend you watch batman mask of the phantasm that is not campy but it's 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 so fantastic Mm. uh we just got a few more here Movie The Golden Sock. Ben Affleck and Keanu Reeves are good actors. Jack Nicholson is overrated. Oh, boy. I wonder why he picked those. Uh, I think Ben Affleck is a pretty good actor. I think Keanu Reeves is better than people give him credit for. Jack Nicholson is like on the Mount Rushmore, dude. Like He's one of my all-time favorite actors. He is, he, he is Hall of Fame. What are you talking about? Yeah. I, there's, there's, there's a lot of Jack Nicholson movies I've never seen, but... Um, I've, but I've seen him stretch himself in, in new ways. He's not just always like the smart ass. I mean, he's, he is great at, at playing that, but, um, I, yeah, Keon, I think all three of those are good actors and they're good movie stars. So yeah. first and foremost. Okay, here we go. Dr. Expendable. Pulp fiction is terrible. Mm-hmm. Quentin Tarantino is awful in general. His great dialogue is just throwing as much profanity as possible to be edgy. Pulp Fiction is a series of vignettes of awful characters being awful. I didn't see a single scene that was enjoyable. Even if the movie was shown in order, it wouldn't be interesting or make sense. I think it was edited that way so that Tarantino could claim that if you don't like it, it's because you didn't get it. The only redeeming part is the ass watch. Right to jail. This is egregious. Like... Go away forever, Dr. Expendable. Holy shit. What a bad take. What a bad take. Look, I can be objective. This is my favorite movie, but this is just this is just a bad opinion. Uh, his great dialogue is just throwing as much profanity as possibly edgy. Tarantino is one of the best dialogue writers in Hollywood. What are you talking about? <laughs> the opening scene to Inglorious Bastards feels so real. 
the car the car scene in Pulp Fiction where they're they're driving they're talking about burgers and and Amster, like stop stop what are you talking about yeah it I mean the Pulp Fiction is such a touchstone for so many uh, it, it's like canon I don't I what what are we doing here? right to jail right to jail uh, the dude is always here Woody Allen has never made a great film uh, Annie Hall is a triumph see I I, I, I I, I didn't make it through any hall when I watched it, but it was a long time ago. I don't know. I mean, um, I did really like um what's that movie? Let's <laughs> see, um Midnight in Paris. Yeah, yeah I really with, uh, enjoyed Arnold that Wilson. movie. Yeah. And and Blue Jasmine. Dude, Kate Blanchett, one of my two favorite actresses. She just rocks the house in that movie. There is like a there's a manic energy to Woody Allen movies that I that I'm I'm remembering from when I have seen them. But uh, I, I, I got to go back. I got to rewatch Annie Hall, I guess, because I missed something because uh, I know that I'm in the minority who I didn't really get that. movie. If it doesn't resonate with you, it doesn't. Uh, same person says just because a director or film was influential and made an impact on the film industry doesn't make them great directors. That whole statement is contradictory to itself. If somebody made a, an impact on film industry, how could you say they weren't a great director? I don't even understand what, like, how's that logical? Yeah, and uh, I mean, um, if something is going to make an impact, I get. I'm trying to think about uh, when I learned what what a director really has to do. They they do they have to make sure that the vision is carried forward through every element of the movie making process and they they when i first started working at grim and um i would see these big production meetings that we would have and i would also look at the the prep schedule and i would see directors meeting with the costume department directors meeting with props like they they really they have, their hands have on everything. they do and i i didn't i think like as just before i was able to see this firsthand working on a TV show, um, as an average viewer, I don't think I fully understood what a dir- what a director does, other than they just tell people where to point the camera and they like talk really closely with actors and kind of. Uh, but no, I mean they're the person everyone goes to to say like, "What do you see? What do you? How, how do you want this?" And they have to be good communicators. So a good director is a good communicator, and a good communicator makes a cohesive film that stands the test of time. That yeah, really I, I'm sorry, people. I don't care what you're doing. If you make something that influences that medium, you know, going forward, don't tell me that person's not great at what they do. Yeah. Uh, and the same person has one more point. The Lovely Bones is the best <laughs> Peter Jackson film. This person is mentally ill. <laughs> I, I, I just, these that alone would be bad, but the three combined, seek help, <laughs> please. Uh, the last one I have here, J.C. Ice. The hallway fight scene in Old Boy is shit. Yes, I'm talking about the original. This person's just trying to be edgy. Just stop. That that scene is unbelievable. Single framed with that core. I mean, single shot with that choreography. Like it's one of the best film scenes of the last twenty years. Stop. Just stop. Chelsea, what are some of your hot takes? Can I share two? Oh, please. Okay. Um. So my first hot take is that I think Hercules is the 90s Disney film that should stand the test of time as being the best 
movie that came from Disney. Wow. In the 90s. Wow. Okay. Um, and I do like Hercules, by the way. I, what's not to love about it? Um, I, I'll just leave it there. But, um, my second point is, and this is a little adjacent to film, it's, it's not really a m- movie hot take exactly, but in the 2020 Oscars, so the Oscars that happened right before the pandemic, they, brought Eminem for a surprise performance of Lose Yourself. They brought and I was very overcome with emotion, oddly enough, by it. I've actually never seen Eight Mile. But <laughs> you only need to I, see the ending. <laughs> but I I do remember the impact of that song. And oh, it was I, everywhere. I felt like that uh, the audience at the Oscars were a bunch of snobs. No one was having fun with it. And I remember there was all this criticism the next day about that was pointless. What they bring Eminem out there for? How long has it been since Eight Mile, you know, won the Oscar for best song? And I just thought you all are missing the point. Like, let's just have fun with this. Like to to see. I, I thought it was I thought it brought some great energy to the room. I remember seeing Billie Eilish's brother in the audience. He was feeling it. Um, Phineas, I think is his name. I was like, OK, Phineas, you at least get it. But um, I just felt like everyone just looked like a big old stick in the mud. So my hot take is that they didn't just those that audience didn't deserve that Eminem performance. I wish I had been there to see that because I feel like it would have been pretty, pretty fucking powerful. <laughs> I don't know if that's a hot take, but I appreciate your uh, your uh, gusto there, Chelsea. Uh, the main one I want to say, and this is this is going to be probably controversial. Meryl Streep. Everyone just stop, please. Just stop. Can we just stop? She's a good actress. Why Why everyone decided to put her on this untouchable Michael Jordan pedestal, I don't get it. That woman could walk in front of a camera, sit on a toilet, and take a big old steaming dump, and they would give her an Oscar nomination. I swear to God, this is just one of those situations where somebody shook the right hands in Hollywood over the years, and they just kiss her ass every year. She's a very good actress. She is slightly overrated actress. Doesn't mean she's not great. She is great. Let's stop acting like she's on this upper echelon above everyone else that's ever acted in a movie. Knock it off. It, it, yeah. It, I I would say even if I were Meryl Streep, I would feel like, please, people, please stop. Like, it's I think it's a little more interesting to be like a Glenn Close or something that is a little bit more of an underdog who has really shined in a few performances. And when they, you know, come out of left field, people really root for, root for them. So with Meryl Streep, I don't know. She's always being shoved down our throat. <laughs> Don't be wrong. She's done something like she's amazing in Devil Wears Prada. She is. I don't know why she won an Oscar for Kramer vs. Kramer. I just don't. You want a hot take? I'll give you a hot take. Kate Blanchett is a better actor than Meryl Streep has ever been. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fight me. Oh. I, I remember being pretty irritated when she there was that string of nominations she was getting about like uh, like six, seven years ago. And she's like into the woods. I was like, oh, okay, we're just handing them out now. But absurd chelsea that was a lot of fun yeah i'm glad we did this um let's just close out with our recommendations i'll go first this week this okay. episode we don't do this weekly I, I do that to myself all the time <laughs> so i'm gonna go ahead and recommend the new soderbergh movie uh no sudden move on hbo max it's awesome like soderbergh's one of my favorite directors he never disappoints some of his movies are better than others but you never watch a soderbergh movie and go i wish i hadn't watched that and this movie I would honestly put it like on probably one of my favorite Soderbergh movie lists. And he just 
plopped it on HBO Max. Here you go, everybody. There it is. Like, such a great movie. Takes place in 1955. It's basically a heist movie. People are really hardcore calling it a heist movie. It technically is, but it's not the kind of heist movie you think it is. But it's serious at the right moments. It's funny at the right moments. You know, Soderbergh does his own cinematography, and he just, his shots are... Definitely puts his stamp on it. Mm. Uh, also, great score by David Holmes. Another jazzy, subtle jazzy score in the background that I've come to associate with Soderbergh films. Great cast. Don Cheadle, Benicio Del Toro, uh, Julia Fox, who you probably saw in Uncut Gems, John Hamm, Kieran Culkin, out of his mind, just acting great. <laughs> David Harbour in a very subdued, unimposing role, which I'm not used to seeing him in. So it's like, oh, he's got some range, you know? Mm. Uh Great, great role by Bill Duke, Ray Liotta, and out of nowhere, surprise, Brendan Fraser's in the movie. Oh, I like that. And uh, a special cameo towards the end by someone who I think is becoming the king of cameos. I won't, I won't spoil who it okay. is. But the movie, top to bottom, I was just so entertained. It, it, it never drags. You know, typical heist. There's double crosses. You know, you don't really find out what the thing is everybody's coveting until towards the end. It's it's also on top of being a heist movie, very much a commentary on um, unfettered capitalism, things like that. So if you haven't seen No Sudden Move, check it out. It's still on HBO Max. It is it's awesome. Great, thank you. I give it a three. Oh, <laughs> after all that, and it's a one. Um, I I haven't had a whole lot of time to be watching things lately, but the something that I did sneak in because I was just like, this will put me in a good mood. And I'm really glad I did rewatch it. Was uh, was Zoolander? <laughs> um, <laughs> I also didn't realize that Ben Stiller directed that movie. Um, which I, I, this was my tenth time seeing that movie. I don't. I even watched it on the original DVD that I bought when I was like in high school. Um, but uh, Zoolander is. I think every time you watch it, there is a new character to focus on on screen and see something like subtle and silly, uh, just hilarious that they're doing. Um, some some shout outs on this last rewatch that I, I, I want to um, say would be Mugatu's dog. What a comic genius. <laughs> uh, I... I Will Ferrell is kind of distracting as that Mugatu character, perfectly distracting. But like because I'm so familiar with that performance, I could really just focus on on the dog, and the dog was just cracking me up. Uh, Mila Jovovich as Katinka Inka Kabovna Nana. I mean, what? Wow, very is, impressive. Um, I have seen this movie a lot. I probably have seen it more than ten times. I think I was underselling myself there. Um, and David Duchovny as the the hand model. I. I forget that that he has that little moment in the middle of the movie where he has to explain the conspiracy behind why male models are used for all these assassinations and i think he's so pitch perfect in that part um so uh zoolander oh also just like vince vaughn in that silent role as derek's brother when he goes coal mining he's doing so much too and vince vaughn's such like known for his his talky comedy but seeing just the expressions he makes every everything is just perfection um and the cameo by billy zane is wonderful just gotta give a cameo by david bowie baby yes 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 and owen wilson rocking 
bangs, bangs on a man that works really well and he looks really good with them. So um, all the love to Zoolander. Uh, I give it a three. Yeah. You know what gets me about Ben Stiller movies? There's so many of them that the first time I watch them, I was just not into it. And then you keep rewatching them. They get better. First of all, I watched Zoolander. I thought it was so stupid. And then you watch it over and over. You're like, this is hilarious. Mm -hmm. Good recommendation, Chelsea. Okay, so that's going to do it for this one. Uh, we are going to do the Val Kilmer episode next. Yes. So if you need to catch up, catch up on your Val Kilmer movies. Uh, I'm looking forward to this one. He's a very interesting, yeah. very interesting person. So we'll be back next time with that. So for the Marquee Spotlight, I am Spencer Bailey. I'm Chelsea Burnett. We'll see you. Thank you for listening. The Marquee Spotlight is recorded in Portland, Oregon. Music composed and produced by Josh Colopy and cover art created by Taylor Engel. Check us out on Twitter for updates regarding new episodes and listen to episodes anywhere podcasts are found.